0: Well, we will be looking in Joel again this morning. And I just want to emphasize that our purpose is not only to understand the book itself, but also to come to a better understanding of how to interpret scriptures, especially prophetic scriptures in, in general, not just for this book, but for reading the Bible, and especially prophetic scriptures. In fact, we've not really tried to go verse by verse, but rather to get an overall understanding of the book, which will then help us to go back and analyze individual verses. We get an understanding of the forest, and then we'll look at the trees a little bit later, but uh, hopefully. Much of what Joel wrote is given in uh, highly metaphorical, figurative language, which means that there's been a number of different interpretations of this important little book. In light of that fact, in light of the fact that there's a lot of different interpretations of Joel, I want to give this morning a few fundamental principles I believe we must always keep in mind as we seek to understand Old Testament prophecies in general and Joel in particular. So here are some, I think, very important fundamental principles of interpretation of the scriptures. First is this. Christ is the key. Christ is the key that will unlock many different portions of scripture. As Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24:27. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all scriptures. He said all the prophets, going to all the prophets. That means if you're reading the prophet, prophets, you ought to find Christ there somewhere. He's the key to understanding it. He explained To them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, the prophecies, the types, the shadows, the sacrifices, the laws, all point to him in some way or another. So that's the first thing. Christ is the key. The next principle flows from that one. If Christ is the key, then what was said by him and about him in the New Testament will help us rightly understand the Old Testament. We must interpret the Old Testament the way Christ and his apostles did in the New Testament. You don't just go to the Old Testament. We, we're, we have a New Testament now. And that explains to us many things about the Old Testament. That even some of the prophets longed to look into these things. We, we have the revelation that they didn't have in terms of how to understand much, so much of this. So the point is, is that we have to go to Christ and the apostles in the new testament to help us understand the old we use the new to understand the old one of the main things that will help us understand the way joel or what joel wrote um, is simply how it's quoted in the new testament especially how peter quotes it in relationship to the events of the day of pentecost so we have to go by what christ Said and what his apostles said in the New Testament to help us really understand the Old Testament. It's also important to keep in mind the direction of revelation, the direction of revelation in God's Word. It's always away from shadows toward substance. It's always um, from the outward forms and uh, symbols towards the inward reality. From the external to the internal, away from the partial toward the more complete knowledge of God, especially that more complete knowledge of God that has been revealed in Christ. The Old Testament's for our instruction. We don't just leave it behind and say, Well, I have the New Testament. It's for our instruction. But we should beware of any teaching or practice that seems to go backwards in terms of emphasis on externals. Or back into Old Testament shadows instead of emphasizing New Testament realities. We need to beware of spiritual regression, not only in the area of our morality, but also in terms of God's revelation in the scriptures. We don't want to regress. We want to progress, progress. Um, Where revelation progresses, we don't want to regress um there's a it seems to me there's quite an emphasis these days on uh the days and ceremonies and uh rituals of judaism uh, it's like we really need to learn about all about these things now. There's a sense in which that's okay if it, it helps us understand the New Testament reality. But if, if we get fixated on those things and we're just looking at them, that's not going to help us. So I'm just uh, wanting to emphasize here as far as understanding the Scripture, interpreting the Scriptures, we need to uh, keep in mind the direction of the revelation that God has given and that's towards Christ, towards more reality, not back into the shadows, not into the externals, but into the internal reality of the knowledge of God. Another principle I want to bring out this morning, which we've already touched on in the past, but I want to try to explain it a little better this time, that is the important principle that we must interpret the various portions of Scripture according to the type of literature they contain. This is really what it means to take the Bible literally. R.C. Sproul said it this way, To interpret the Bible literally is to interpret, at, interpret it as literature. This in no way denies the inspiration or authority of the scripture. It simply recognizes that God had those he inspired to bring forth his word to use almost every available type of literary form as he, as he had them write the scriptures. Uh, the, the fancy word for that is genre, every particular type of literary genre which just means the categories of composition. For instance, some parts of scripture are straightforward narrative, while others are highly poetic. And we said a lot of the Old Testament is poetry. We don't realize that a lot of times, but about a third of the Old Testament is written in poetry. But anyway, so some of the scripture is straightforward narrative, other parts are highly poetic, some parts are doctrinal presentations. Others are apocalyptic revelation containing much imagery and symbolism. So we, we need to recognize that as we read, or we'll, we will make mistakes if we don't. I want to give an example. Generally, it's not too difficult to discern what type of literature we're dealing with as we read it. Now, here's, here's just a, a secular example if we read a sentence like the fog temporarily settled over the harbor of the city and then dissipated. So that's a pretty straightforward narrative, uh, concerning this event of fog coming over the harbor, but compare that to these words by Carl Sandburg, the fog comes on little cat feet. It sits looking over the harbor and the city on silent haunches, and then moves on. So, the fog comes on little cat feet. Immediately, we should recognize that we're reading poetry with some very figurative language. If we don't, and we take this in a wooden, literalistic manner, we will have some very strange ideas about fog. <laughs> we'll be looking around for those little cat feet. On the other hand, Sandberg has given us given us a very memorable way of thinking about fog. It's, yeah, I like that little description of fog. Uh, now, I chose that example of poetry because it doesn't rhyme which is the case with most Hebrew poetry. It, didn't, it was poetry, but it didn't rhyme. And we're so used to poetry rhyming that we just think that's all that poetry is. Well, there's a lot of other forms of poetry that don't rhyme, like this, one, this little poem from Sandberg. We can usually recognize... Something as poetry because of the figurative language and the sentence structure, but the problem sometimes comes: is this really figurative language or not? Now, I want to give you an example of that. This is from a more spiritual situation. This took place during the Reformation. You know, you had the the great reformer Luther, who's usually considered the uh, one who started the Reformation. And then you had other reformers coming along a little bit later, Calvin and Zwingli and others. Well, they had, there's kind of a uh, divergence of opinion on a number of things between the Lutherans and the other, and the Calvinists and Zwingli and some of these others. They had about 15 points of dispute that decided they decided they needed to get together and try to work through. And they did work through 14 of the 15 but one of them was a big sticking point. And it had to do with this little phrase, this is my body. I want to try the Latin, hocus corpus meum. And uh, I know some of you guys are studying Latin, so I'm probably in trouble there. But hocus corpus meum. They went round and around on this. Luther actually took a piece of chalk and wrote it on the table. He said, this, Jesus said, this is my body. And so Swingley and some of the others that were taking a more figurative view, more symbolic view of that phrase, said, no, no. That, he doesn't mean that this is actually his body. This is a, it represents his body. Luther Luther would pound on the table. He said, this is my body. This is my body. Well, after a number of days of that, they gave up. They couldn't get together on it. One was taking a very literalistic view, Luther was, of those words, and the others were taking a more figurative. So, like I say, in general, we can... We can tell if words are are to be taken literally or more figuratively. I mean, when Jesus said, I am am the door, you know that's that's a figurative way of speaking. Or I am the vine, you know that is. But when it comes to something like this is my body, it gets a little, sometimes it is a little difficult. Well, anyway, got to get back to Joel. Thus far, we've outlined the book like this. We've seen that Joel's vision of the things that were nearest to him, his present circumstances, included an actual plague of locusts and a drought. That's in chapter 1 of Joel. So there was an actual plague of locusts and a drought. And he gives his prophecy in light of that terrible destruction that was coming upon them right then from these locusts. He then goes on to speak of a more serious imminent threat close at hand to the people a greater judgment from God which was a coming mighty army army, which he used the locust invasion as an illustration of of how devastating this coming judgment would be that's in chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 and then in light of this present crisis and the impending greater judgment that was coming upon the people Joel calls the people to repentance and calls them to come together to cry out to God for mercy and deliverance. That's chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And then finally, he speaks of the things beyond his own day, some some in some cases far beyond his own day, when God would deliver his repentant people and pour out his spirit upon all mankind, judge the nations for their sin, and bring full and final salvation. That's from chapter 2, verse 18, really to the end of the book. In fact, we said that really the easiest way to uh, outline the book is just two parts. You have the first part from the beginning to, to uh, chapter 2, verse 18, which gives you the problem, and then the rest of the book, God's answer. So, that's just a very brief overview that brings us to the passages that I said we would zero in on at the end of the last message. The passages that speak of the cosmic upheel, upheaval related to to the day of the Lord. We we looked at this subject of the day of the Lord. And in each case, when it talks about that, there's some descriptive uh, words there that talk about a great cosmic upheaval related to that. So I want, I want to read these to you this morning I decided to not have Jim come up and read because these are shorter uh, sections and it's kind of broken up but if we turn to chapter chapter 2 Joel says blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming surely it is near a day of darkness and gloom A day of clouds and thick darkness. And then if you go on to chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Before them the earthquakes. That's talking about this invading army that he uses the locust as an illustration of. Before them the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So here you have him describing this locust invasion, but he's using, actually, he, he's using that as an illustration of a coming destruction from an army. But he talks again and he uses these cosmic terms. The sun and moon grow dark. dark. Uh, the stars lose their brightness. And then if you turn over to verse 28, and this is where we'll spend most of our time on this section today, verse 28 and reading down to 32, and it will come about after that, after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on the, on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And then one last section in chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, Tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. That's talking about the people. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel." So these are obviously prophetic portions that deal with judgment. And in order to emphasize the danger and severity of God's judgment, the prophets, not just Joel, you see this kind of language very often in the Old Testament in the prophets, the prophets would often use well-recognized metaphors and images Often these vivid images used end time cosmic judgment language to describe specific judgments throughout history. In other words, we brought this out before, that this day of the Lord, is. we we tend to, because of um, reading the New Testament, to think that the day of the Lord just deals with this end time uh, event when Christ comes again. But we spent time showing that that's not the case in fact even in joel we see that's not the case there's different um events that he's talking about but he calls them the day of the lord they're not all related to the end times so uh, the point is that that the prophets would use these well-recognized metaphors and images uh, to describe specific judgments throughout history. Sometimes the judgments the prophets spoke of was close at hand. Sometimes it was f- far away. And sometimes this language actually did refer to final judgment. And we have examples of each of these time frames here in Joel. The first two sections that I read, Joel chapter 2, 1 and 2, and 10 and tw- 11, refer to a judgment that was near at hand, something that Joel said is just around the corner. Verses 28 through 32, we know that was far off for Joel because it, it, it was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, which was hundreds of years in the future for, for Joel, even though it's past for us 2,000 years ago for us, but for Joel it was hundreds of years ahead. And then the verses in chapter 3 that we just read are yet future even for us. Because they refer to, I believe it's clear, they refer to the final judgment. So what not, what might not be so obvious is that the prophets often used this type of stereotyped images in order to emphasize the reality of judgment without necessarily saying that all the symbolic language would have to be fulfilled in detail. It was just a way of emphasizing the, the uh, severity of the judgment. It didn't necessarily mean that all those uh, details related to sun and moon and stars falling and all the uh, clouds and darkness uh, all had to be fulfilled in detail. Here's what Gordon Fee said in his book, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. He said, we need to learn that pictures of the future are just that, pictures. The pictures express reality, but they are not themselves to be confused with the reality, nor are the details of every picture necessarily to be fulfilled in some specific way even though these passages we're looking at refer to different judgments separated by hundreds of years, they all use this cosmic end-time imagery in order to impress upon the hearers the seriousness of God's judgment. So I I hope you're following me here. I've read like four different sections using this kind of judgment, but it's end-time imagery, but it didn't always refer to the end times. It was to reinforce the severity of what the prophets were saying even though the language does not refer to the final end time judgment the actual event will undoubtedly be much greater than even the imagery could present Uh, the judgments of God can't possibly be presented as powerfully and as uh, awesomely, if that's a word, as they really are. This is just a way of trying to get this across to us in poetic and often figurative language. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be terrible. This is going to be uh, beyond your imagination. As one writer put it, An upheaval of cosmic proportions means changes in the sun and moon and stars, it must be understood that the authors were describing the indescribable and that rigorous literalism need not always be required. Still, an overriding impression is that the day of the Lord will powerfully affect nature. So I'm just trying to bring home here that we're dealing with figurative language we're dealing with metaphors uh, that the prophets were using and Joel was using and it was recognized as that we don't need to think we have to see every detail fulfilled for, in order for these prophecies to be accurate and to be used by the prophets the way they were um, the question I left us with last time was why did Peter include this part of Joel's prophecy about the wonders in the sky and the signs on earth and the blood and the fire and the smoke and the sun t- turned to darkness? Why did he include all that in this portion where he's explaining the outpouring of the spirit? I mean, there was an event which obviously was supernatural where God was pour- outpouring it, pouring out his spirit upon the people there on the day of Pentecost. And you could have quoted that part, the first part of uh, Joel, without bringing in this uh, darkness and moon turned to blood and and, uh, columns of smoke and all this. Why did he include that? Well, some think this is because he was thinking about the great manifestations of power that were seen at the time of the crucifixion. After all, this was only 50, about 50 days later after the, from the time of the crucifixion to the time of the day of Pentecost. So it was just right, you know, just a month and a half or so later. What happened on the, uh, at the time of the crucifixion? Well, there was three hours of darkness, remember that? Three hours of darkness in the middle of the day. And the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom and there was an earthquake. And even it says that the bodies of some of the saints were apparently raised from the dead temporarily, and people saw them. So these were spectacular events that took place at the time of the crucifixion. So some people would say that that's the reason that that Peter quoted this portion, uh, that that part of the prophecy of Joel. These were certainly displays of wonders in the sky and on the earth. Uh, So I think that is a possible explanation of why Peter used this part of Joel's prophecy. But I think there are some other things that we should consider when we read about this cosmic upheaval part of the prophecy. As we pointed out last time, two tremendous changes took place in the first century as a result of the life and death and resurrection of Christ. First, the whole Old Covenant system of temple and sacrifices and priesthood was made obsolete and was soon to be destroyed, just as Jesus had prophesied. So let's turn to to what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 23 and 24. Remember, we're trying to figure out why Peter included this part uh, there on the day of Pentecost as part of Joel's prophecy. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 23 to begin with, we're just going to skip around here a little bit. can't read the whole sections, but Matthew 23 and 37, this is where Jesus looks over Jerusalem just prior to going, prior to the time of the crucifixion. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Now here's the point. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And then if you look over in 24 verse 1. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which shall not be torn down. So then they question him about this. As he was sitting in the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they're actually asking two different things here, although they might have been together in in their minds. They're asking different things. When Jesus goes on to explain that. But he's saying judgment. What he's saying is judgment is coming upon the Jewish nation. Your house is going to be left to you desolate. uh, And this temple is going to be torn down. Not one stone left upon another. In fact, he said this to, to the Jewish people. Upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. So I'm bringing all this up to say that surely this is in in Peter's mind, not just what happened at the crucifixion, the earthquake and the darkness, but what Jesus had prophesied would come upon them in this generation. Peter's saying, uh, this, "That's that's me. This is my generation. All this stuff that Jesus said, the destruction of the temple, and uh, the judgment of God. Uh, surely these words run on, on Peter's mind as he contemplated Joel's prophecy, especially the part about when Jesus said it's going to happen to this generation." G- Peter had to know this is this is coming soon. So he quotes this part of uh, of Joel, and in fact, it was soon. It was just a few years after this day of Pentecost in 70 A.D. The Romans laid siege to Jerusalem. The historical record shows that it was a terrible slaughter of more than a, a million Jewish people. They'd come into the city. For for Passover, it was crowded with people, and uh, they were surrounded by armies. Titus came and surrounded these. Many people starved, and those that didn't starve were massacred. The temple was torn down; not one stone was left upon another. The only thing that was left, that whole area there, was one outer retaining wall which is what the Jews have today the wailing wall it's called the the temple was totally torn down just like Jesus had said not one stone left upon another and the city much of the city was burned but here's an interesting sidelight the historical record also tells us we have uh, historians from near that time period tells us that many Christians took heed to Jesus' warnings in verses in the verses, uh, tw- uh, chapter 24, 15, if you're still there, in Matthew. I turned away, so I have to turn back here. Matthew 24 and 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination, the desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And goes on and talks about that. Well, the historical record tells us that the Christians actually did get out of out of Jerusalem uh, before this terrible time of judgment, and they fled to a place called Pella. That's not the one in Iowa, although although the one in Iowa I've read was named after this one. This one uh, is uh, in the foothills of the mountains south of the Sea of Galilee and the Christians got out of Jerusalem went up there and they were safe at the same time when Jerusalem was under siege a million people were slaughtered the temple was torn down the city was burned So, in 70 AD, not many years after the day of Pentecost, there was blood and fire and vapor of smoke in Jerusalem, just as God, just as Jesus had said, just as is in this prophecy of Joel, just as Peter quoted that part of the prophecy, God was bringing judgment upon the people who had rejected and crucified Christ who did not receive their Messiah so in this judgment we see a near future fulfillment of Peter's quote of Joel but there is an even greater event taking place we're trying to understand why Joel, why uh, Peter quoted this part of Joel there is an even greater event taking place and I think this is another reason that Peter quoted these judgment verses from Joel. As God brought judgment on those who failed to keep the old covenant and to receive the Messiah, he also was setting up the new covenant, which included this wonderful promise of the outpouring of, Spirit, of the Holy Spirit upon both Jew and Gentile. So as he was destroying the old, bringing judgment on the old, he was setting up the new, God was. This new age of the Spirit shows that in the last days, that, that the last days were actually now upon the people, upon the world. The last days were finally coming upon the whole earthly system. If, you're, if you turn to this prophecy uh, as Peter gives it in Acts chapter 2, You see, this is the way he starts the prophecy. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. We're in Acts 2 and then verse 17. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my Spirit upon all mankind. With the coming of the promised Messiah and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit we the the world entered the last days and the next great thing promised by God the next great event in God's plan was judgment not just local judgment like upon Jerusalem a judgment upon the whole world. The last days are the days between the first and second coming of Christ. To say it another way, this was the beginning of the end of this present evil age. With the coming of the Spirit, you had the beginning of the end of this age that we're we're living in. And the ushering in of the age to come, they, they overlap. The, the, this present age and the age to come right now overlap one another. Through the coming of the Holy Spirit, God's people are now tasting of the powers of the age to come. That's what we're told in Hebrews chapter 6. We, we are experiencing the powers of the age to come even though we still live in this present age. But it shows, you see, that God was, with the outpouring of the Spirit, God was saying this is the beginning of the end for this world. The future age to come had in many ways actually begun. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Gospel would go out to the whole world. And then the final great day of the Lord will come, bringing both judgment and salvation. How long until that day, the final, the final day, no one knows. But it is the next thing on God's agenda. This is brought home as Peter includes the Cosmic judgment language of Joel's prophecy along with the verses concerning the outpouring of the Spirit. So, I'm going to try to summarize what I've said here. Hopefully, I haven't confused you too much. Why did Peter include the judgment language along with the truths concerning the outpouring of the Spirit? Surely, this is partly explained by the fact that he had heard from, his, from the Lord's own lips. This type of language related to the destruction of Jerusalem at the end of the age. That's the first reason. Jesus used this very language. If you you want to look back in Matthew chapter 24, 29, this very language of of the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood, that was all right there in what Jesus spoke. God was bringing down the curtain on the apostate Jewish system and also beginning the last act of the drama of redemption of his creation. Therefore, cosmic judgment language is used in both cases. For the Jews, judgment was right at hand just within the next few years. It would arrive by way of the Romans in just probably 30, 30 years or so. For the world, judgment was the next great thing, the next great event on God's calendar. So I think that's why when Peter quotes Joel, he includes this language of sun being turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. I hope that wasn't too confusing. If it's something you haven't thought about much in the past, it's, I simply ask that you give it some consideration, some thought, as you read through the scriptures. I want to point out a couple of other, a couple more scriptures along this line that I think bring this home uh, even more clearly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul refers to the first those first century Christians as those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Think about that. He said that to the Christians back in the first century. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The end of the old covenant with the Jewish nation had come. The age of the new covenant ushering in the last days has arrived. You could put it this way, the beginning of the end of God's whole plan of redemption was now upon us. The ends of the ages have come. That's what he told those Christians 2,000 years ago. The writer of the letter of, uh, to the Hebrews presents it even more powerfully, I think. He says that because of the work of Christ, the consummation of the ages has now come. The consummation of the ages. Let's turn to Hebrews. And chapter 9. The writer of Hebrews is explaining to these Jewish people that had become Christians. Why they should not go back into the old system. And he's explaining to them about the temple and the sacrifices. He said, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed by these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Comparing the earthly tabernacle, the er earthly temple, with the heavenly temple, and uh, he said, you had to have these earthly sacrifices for the earthly temple, but the the heavenly temple was uh, cleansed with much greater, something much greater than these. Animal sacrifices. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year, with the blood, blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But that's note how he puts that. He says, "Now, now, uh, with the coming of Christ, this is the consummation of the ages. This is this is the beginning of the end." Now, now that's what, what he's uh, emphasizing here. But now, once at the consummation of the ages. He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as much, and in as much and inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ, also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time first for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. In other words, he's saying, "The next great event now is judgment, the next great event on God's calendar consummation the consummation of the age consummation means the point at which something is finalized or complete the ultimate end so that's where we that's where we are right now uh, in God's economy in God's plan we're in the consummation of the ages Another way to say it is just that we're now living in the age in which the world will be brought to a close and all will be brought to judgment. For some, this will bring great terror. For others, it will be the time of deliverance and triumph. How, how much longer are these last days? How much longer will they go on? We don't know. But this we can say with absolute scriptural authority, the end of all things is at hand. We can say that because that's what Peter said 2,000 years ago. The end of all things is at hand. Peter also tells us in Second Peter why, that, why it hasn't happened yet. The fact that the end has not come yet, is due to the mercy and the patience of God.